conversation this morning, and I'm going to be a pain again and ask for a little more light. Is that okay? I just need some more light to see. My eyes are getting dimmer, and I have these things are great to hold and uh, carry by your side or wear on your head. Thank you, Alan. So I want to have a conversation with you this morning about set free to live free. And in every time you'll agree with me, in every culture, men, women, teenagers, young and old, we've looked inside ourselves and we've recognized that something needed to change, right? Would you say that's true? Regardless of the age, regardless of the culture, regardless of the time that we live in, every now and then, humanity looks inside themselves and they say, how can we change? Is there a takeover? Is there a bit of a coup? Oh, you're, you're just waiting to people give. And if they don't give enough, you're just going to keep standing there. I like that style. I like that style. Please give, or these guys will take care of you. Feel no pressure this morning, guys. Feel no pressure. We're doing it the Indian way this morning. So like I was saying, <laughs> from the poorest to the poor, the richest of the rich, a reoccurring question throughout the ages is, how can I change my life? Profound, Jason. How can I change my life? And I just need your attention this morning because we've got a lot to talk about. How can I be happier? Anybody ever ask that question? Yeah. Anybody want that for the kids? Yeah. Well, uh, it's overrated. (laughs) Happiness is overrated, but we've asked that question, of course, given the other side of it, we want our kids to be happy, don't we? How many of us want more peace, less stress? We want uh, more fulfilled lives. We want to be more hopeful. In short, how can I change my life for the better? How can I experience freedom? And everybody needs freedom of some kind this morning. Every heart carries a secret hope that life can be different. Do you agree? Around our society, everybody's carrying this secret hope, whether they communicate it to you not or not. They're secretly hoping that things can be different. But here's the thing this morning. This is where I'm going. Underlying beneath what lies beneath the surface of our behavioral problems, of our emotional problems, there's always a deeper issue. There's an iceberg. They say an iceberg is 90% of it stays below the water, you see the 10%. So, what lies beneath the culture, what lies beneath our hearts, these things that, that surface in behavior, Addictions, emotional problems, stress, anxiety. Paul addresses through this wonderful text this morning that we're going to look again in the book of Galatians. Paul's speaking to a group of, he's speaking to a church, therefore he's speaking to a group of Christ followers, Christians, 2,000 years ago. But here's the beautiful thing about this scripture this morning and about the word of God. It applies as much to us today as it did to those people who lived 2,000 years ago. And so let me read to you what Paul says to the Galatians. I've been trying to get my heart around this text this week and been talking to people and journeying with it. And I just pray that God would breathe on his word, that the Holy Spirit would come and enlighten us this morning, that we would live free. Because we're set free, but we need to live free. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4, chapter 4, 8 to 11. If you want to turn on your phone, if you want to turn on an iPad, or maybe you don't use Apple, and... uh, that's just sad. No, I'm just joking. You can turn in a paper. That's a real cool thing now that people are actually going back to paper and pen. It's, it's really cool. All the hipsters are doing it. So you can turn there. I would say if you're on your phone, please do not pass scripture and go to Angry Birds or we will find out. 
So this is what the scripture says. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Interesting. But now that you know God, and I love this, or rather you're known by God. Isn't that a lovely thought? That you're known by God. Some of us are all trying to chase God, you know, and it's a, it's a bit like a mouse chasing a cat. That's not the way. God is affectionately pursuing humanity, and he wants to know us. Well, that, that's, that, does that not tilt your head a little bit? It tilts my head that the God of the universe knows us. It's not so much that we know God, but that we are known by God. See, religion is man's way to, to, to reach out to God and to grasp God, but Christianity is God reaching down into humanity. And that he knows humanity. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Paul's a little exasperated. He sounds a little deflated. And he sounds like he's feeling that all his work is in vain. Verse 8 and 9 says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Are not gods. Just down at the very end again, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and is given to us in love. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I would end up in India. I kid you not, some of you think I was joking. My life ambition as a young teenager growing up in Derry was that I would join my friends and we would all meet up in the maze prison and it would be great fun. But God had all our plans. He knocked it down. (laughs) No, he radically transformed my heart and life. That was my ambition. So India was never in the forefront or the background. Um, Never ever imagined in my wildest dreams that I would travel or get on a plane. And for probably this last eight years, every year, I've had the privilege to travel along with you guys. There's Davey and there's, there's other people out there who've gone with us, Stephen and Carl, and just looking around the room who've been in India. Ruth has been there and May has been there. And a lot of us for a small tribe here in Dungannon have made that journey. Kat was with us. And uh, we've had tremendous moments and tremendous times in that beautiful country. So huge and, and so large, but yet we're making so much progress. And I'm just delighted by that regenerate idea that we are bringing life to communities and families and turning people's lives around into hope. It's been so, so good this last week or two. But as I've been in India... There, there's this amazing city called Lucknow. And no matter where you go in that city, whether it's in rural places or fields or whether it's just, just I mean, remote small places, you'll find in that village, you'll find in those remote fields, gods and images. Even when people have absolutely nothing, absolutely are impoverished and they have absolutely no bricks, no mortar to live themselves, they'll, they'll set up these temples and these shrines to these gods that are not gods. And some of them carry them in their pockets, like we carry a mobile phone. And some of them gather around these temples and these gods in their homes and in the streets and in the marketplaces, like we gather around our television sets. And so, whether you're in a village or a city or a field, you see temples and you see gods. And people 
bring their food and they bring their flowers. And even when they're in poverty, they bring their best. They bring grain. They bring rice. They bring all sorts of things. And they just lay them before these gods that are not gods so that somehow these gods would, would bless them. It's a weird relationship. You've got to serve it. You've got to give it. You've got to feed it. So farmers give so that their land would be fertile. And mothers give so that their womb would be fertile. And it's an interesting culture altogether. Now here's the thing that I was thinking about this week. We see idols in other cultures way more easier than we see in our world. At least that's me. Does that make sense? It's so easy to go there and see idols and, 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 and images and we think, oh man, this is just outrageous. Why are these poor people doing that? So maybe for us this morning, maybe our idols are certainty. I find that in the 21st century, the, the idol of certainty is, is such a huge idol. You look that we're living longer, we're looking for more health, we think that, that we're indestructible, that we're going to live forever, we think that our jobs are going to be forever, we think that, the, that our, our friendships are going to be forever, and that's okay, but we think that there should be certainty, and then when things happen, like this recession that we're, I don't know if we're in or out, or we're just, what if the hokey pokey is what it's all about? It's a joke, by the way. Recession comes, our world comes crumbling. The pen has just dropped, hasn't it? Our world comes crushing down because certainty is gone. And we live the 21st century. We have so much knowledge, we have so much information, we have so much technology that we think there should be certainty. I, I don't know about you, but my certainty was always in health. I thought if you went to a doctor, if you went to a hospital, these people were just like Jesus, just like God, that if you just got somebody to a hospital, that they would be made well. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why my dad would die and why he would pass away when he's in a hospital with modern technology, machinery, investigation, and cures, and, and, uh, uh, and people researching, and people coming upon things that we never came upon before. That, for me, was my certainty. And my world came falling apart when he died. Because I had a, an idol of certainty. What if our, our idol today in our culture was our phones or... What if it was our television? What if it was the idols that we, we adore, the people that we, we try and escalate and, and put on pedestals? What if our idol was security and comfort? That's a pretty big idol in the 21st century, comfort, right? Yeah. I mean, who doesn't like a little bit of comfort? But where does it stop and where does it end? When we get somewhere, it's just relentless. You've got to serve it, you've got to serve it, you've got to serve it. Comfort and space. And again, not to try and down things this morning or bring a despair into your life or into your mind this morning, but I'm thinking what happened in Manchester was totally bombardic and evil and from the pit of hell. Right? And it scares us because we do not want our kids growing up in that society. We don't want our kids attending concerts with festivals, and fear of that. And then it eats into every part of our life where we want our kids to live in comfort, and we do. But it's not always possible. It's not always possible. And if you serve that idol, it's relentless. It's relentless. Self, work. Men, get a grip of yourselves. The language that you use some of you lie. I've lied. What time did you get up at this morning? How many people put half an hour earlier on their conversation just to prove that you work and that you're worth it? Anybody? 
What's the first thing men ask another man? What's your name? What's the second question? What do you do? Has that become an idol, what we do? I don't know. Just asking the question. So we head back to the start of the Bible, this book called Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 4 and 6. What I want to do this morning is I want to set a pair of glasses on the end of your nose, just like this. So let's just be really weird and take the imaginary glasses. If you're a visitor with us and you're thinking we're weird, it's probably a bad day to visit us. (laughs) But we're okay, really. We're okay, really. So why don't you just take these glasses and set them in the edge of your nose. These are called kingdom glasses. And as my mother-in-law says, they're bifocal. Bifocal. Do you know what bifocal is? It's the glasses that are split that you can... And she used to shout to referees during matches in Manchester, Referee, where's your bifocals? So we're putting on our bifocals this morning. And the two lenses that we're going to look at is one is worship and one is idolatry because the two are much the same. So when I talk about idolatry, I want you to think about worship. That's what I want you to do this morning. If we look around, I want you to do... As you just look around the world, I want you to look through the lens of worship and idolatry. As you look at your own life and just maybe categorize your own life and take an infantry stock check on your soul and your life, I would want you to also look through these lenses and see if there's worship and idolatry. Is that okay? Let's do that. Because everyone worships, everyone who is living worships. The question is not, do you worship? The question is simply this morning, what and who you worship? Does that make sense? Every human being is designed to worship. Humanity has eternity written in its heart, Ecclesiastic says. So all of us are, are made in the image of Yahweh God, the Father God. So we're created, we're wired, we're hotwired to worship. And we do worship. We worship things. And if you want to know what you worship, I want to say worship is probably what you spend your time on, your treasure on, your gifts on, your thinking on, your best thinking. And you do that and you pour your life in that. So what are we pouring ourselves out into? And who are we pouring ourselves into maybe it's a better question. See, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism. It's actually idolism, idolatry. That's the opposite of, of Christianity. And this is what it says in Exodus 4. And God spoke all these words. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. So they're free. They are set free. And we have that analogy in our hearts, right? At least I do. That's my story. God brought me out of an enslaved life, of narrow thinking, of ambition that was very little, ended up in the maze prison, small, 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 and he's enlarged my life and my heart and my capacity to live larger, to live a bigger life. That's what God does. When he comes into your life, when he comes into your heart, he not only makes your life small. See, the gospel message has become way too narrow. We think that God wants to infect a little pain into our lives. That's the first thing. Uh, maybe a little poverty, just to keep us humble. And then what he does, he just he narrows everything. Every good thing that you've enjoyed, don't do it. Every good thing that you've drank and ate, don't do it. That's not the way of the Father. You'll find out in a little bit. So we enslave ourselves. God wants us to live large and to live free and to live in open space. Out of the land of slavery, you shall know all the gods before me. You shall not make yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or on earth, beneath or in the waters, below. Nothing. Here, there, everywhere. Don't make it out of anything, anywhere. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You shall not make yourself an image. 
You shall not bow down to them to worship them. For I, the Lord your God, he says, I'm a jealous God. What is a jealous God? Every relationship, when it's passionate and love, is, is an exclusive relationship, right? That's the language of love. I think so. The language of love is not that we, we sleep around. The language of love is that we're exclusive to one another. That's what marriage sums up. It's exclusive to one another. And therefore, there's, God has got this jealousy because he is passionately exclusive to you. And he doesn't want you sidetracked. And he doesn't want you giving your heart to another because he wants your heart. Because he is love and his love is loyal. And he's kind and he's good and he's got his best for you. So he's jealous. And he's punishing the children for the sin of the parents to, to third and fourth generation. And I hate that part of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let me just explain that briefly to you this morning. What does God do? Is God some wacko out there that's just going to punish people because somebody did something wrong? Say my great-great-granddad did something wrong and then that's me, I'm sunk. No, I think here's what I believe. Because of the cross, all curses are broken. We step into a new land, okay? So don't panic, guys. Don't, I hate the fear gospel. There's so many crazy people out there, wacko people are saying, you know, because fourth, fifth generation that you're cursed and there's not... How big is the cross? Christus victorious. The victory of the cross is powerful. It's powerful. It breaks and slams everything in your life. But what this text is saying is that some of us live worshiping idols, right? We hate God. This is all about idolatry. And if we, we, we live that life out, do you know what your kids are doing? Do you know what your grandkids are doing? They're watching your life. And do you, have you noticed that some families just seem to keep going down the line, whether it's alcohol abuse or, or, or whatever it is, whether it's anger, they, they, they watch their fathers, they watch their great-grandfathers, and they model that, and it goes down line to line to line. Is it behavioral? Yeah, I think it is. Is it spiritual? Yeah, well, everything's spiritual because there's always a power behind something when we give our hearts to something else. But here's the good news. Some of us, I mean, some of, I watch some people in life and, the, and how they live their lives and how they, they, they lead their families. And man, I would say that they are not hoping or, or wishing to see their life replayed out. In fact, their days are not full of joy to see their life lived out throughout their generations because of the, the, the choices that they've made, because of the worship that they've chosen to give themselves to. But here's the good thing. By sh- so there's, there's the bad part, which is generation, generation, third and fourth, but here's the blessing part. A thousand generations. Wow. That's a little top heavy, isn't it? A little unbalanced. Isn't God so extravagant that when he gives the blessing part and the good part, it's not just third and fourth generation, but he's absolutely lavishes it to thousands of generations. Okay, I've said enough on that. Have you caught that? I just think that's helpful because some of the teaching out there is just weird. And people are living in fear. So I don't want you to live in fear. So God has set his people free. He's gathered as a family at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And here's what we can be thinking. We can be thinking, you know what, that was 3,000 years ago. People were primitive. They hadn't much education. They hadn't much sense about them. They were pagan people. They were very basic people. Therefore, man, they just, we don't do that. It's just weird, Jason, that you're talking about something that happened 3,000 years ago. Can you imagine if we said, hey, let's, you know, set up a couple of golden calves up at the top of the town hall and bow down? You say, no, that's such a weird thing to do. And quite rightly, it is a, such a weird thing to do. But here's the danger. C.S. Lewis has a name for when we think of this. When we have this philosophy, he calls it chronological snobbery. Because <laughs> the only thing that's separating us is the years, actually, there's still idolatry. 
And so if we think that that just happens 3,000 years ago because people were primitive and people had no education and no technology that they bowed down to things, it's just chronological snobbery, right? C.S. Lewis. These are timely words for us today. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above and the earth below or the waters below. Nowhere are we to find something that becomes worship. And all idolatry is is just trying to bring God to us and us to God through a counterfeit, through something that is not real at all. So remember the two lenses? What's the two lenses in your bifocals? Where? Shh. Yeah. Smart people. You guys know it now because you got the answer. What is it? Help me, Jesus. We worship in a dollar. Okay, we're there. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So what is worship? It's what we give our time, our, our treasure, and our talent to. Can I ask you, what consumes your time? We don't worship an image. We don't need to worship an image. And here's why. Let me give you a why this morning before we go any further. Here's the reason why. We don't worship an image because... We don't have to worship an image because we are made in the image of God. Have you thought about that? Genesis 1, 27, you created, humanity is created in the image of God. So we don't worship an image because we are the image of God. Sometime before you, you left home this morning, some of you looked in the mirror. Some of you obviously have not looked in the mirror this morning. Okay, so what does a mirror do? No trick question. Re- reflex. Brilliant. Reflects your image. And you can see how Johnny has styled his hair this morning. That guy's so consistent. Keeps his hair the same way all the time. He's just in the front row here. It's by my left. Mark is catching up very, very fast. As is Stephen McCammon, actually, now that I look. And a few more other people. Yeah, you're reflecting. You're reflecting an image. But here's what we do. We're created to reflect the character of God. Right? Sam talked about that this morning. When we're kind, when we're compassionate, when we're generous, we reflect who? God. That's a character of God. To know him is to know his character and to display his character is what we're doing. So we're worshiping and worshiping is reflecting. God, we seek justice in the world. We're enraged when we hear of what happens in Manchester. Right? And by the way, we're enraged when we find out what happens to a busload of Christians, 15 of them when they're heading to a Christian festival in Egypt. We're enraged, right? Because there's something deep within us that says there needs to be justice. This is not right. This is wrong. You're reflecting the image of Father God in heaven. God is just. God is just. So just don't get an image to worship. Be the image and reflect yourself in worship. Does that make sense? It's very powerful when you understand that. Look through the image again. Look through the focals again, the bifocals of worship and idolatry. When we don't need to find a God to worship, we don't need an image to worship, we be the image that worships. We be the image that worships. The Son is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 says, the firstborn over all creation. You know what Jesus came to do? Well, he came to do many things. He came to save, he came to rescue, he came to, con- uh, to set the world free, he didn't come to condemn the world, he came to make it a better place. Jesus comes to that you might have life. Jesus comes to set people free. He does that, but he also comes. His main objective is to reflect the Father. He reflect the Father. In John 14, he says, I've come, Father. I've said your words. I've done your works, and I've represented you. I've reflected your image. So you want to see what, what it looks like, then you look at God. And then when you want to know what Jesus 
looks like you look at God the Father. And you want to know what God the Father looks like, you look like Jesus. You look at Jesus. And if you want to know what the church should look like, then you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. Not the politics or anything else, not our doctrines or theology, but you look Jesus, you see, because Jesus is perfect theology. Right? Would you agree with me? Jesus is perfect theology. He's right. Always right. So that's what we do. That's why, that's why there's a demonic counterfeit. Now, there's a heavy word, eh? Demonic. The enemy of your soul, he wants to enslave you, and Jesus just wants to free you and live, and for you to live free. And there's a difference. See, Paul says in our text this morning, Galatians, they're not gods, yet they have the power to enslave. Is that a kind of contradiction? I think it's a contradiction. It's quite a... They're not gods, but they have power to enslave, so... Okay, Paul, what are they? Are they real or not real? Are they, what's the deal here? Yet they have the power to enslave us. Seems contradictory, but you're not gods, yet you have the power to enslave. Question. Are spiritual beings something or are they nothing? Are they real or unreal? Is it just a marble statue, TV screen, prescription meds? Or is there something going on? Is there something going on? Well, here's a conclusion you can find throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets like Isaiah. You can also see in passages like 1 Corinthians 8, if you're taking notes this morning. In relation to the Lord, these idols, these things are not gods. There is none like the Lord. They are not gods. So relax. Relax. But in relationship to us, they have power. Personally, in relationship to us, they have power to enslave us when we're attached to the idol of beauty or to the idol of work or to the idol of porn or to the idol of alcohol or to the idol of success or the idol of my girlfriend, my boyfriend, whatever that idol is. To those of us, we bow down and we give our hearts to these things and they become attachments. Therefore, they have power. They have power. These things are something. They're nothing in relationship to God, so don't panic. It's not equal forces rivaling. They're nothing compared to God, but something in relation to us. And they do have power, because Paul's talking about they have power to enslave us. Set free, but not living free. Taken out of bondage, but not living in the fulfillment that God has for us, his preferred future. They have no power compared to God, but yet they have personal power to enslave us, so we don't live free. Because behind these idols, the Bible says there's just demonic power, because that's what the devil loves to do. Come against Jason. He had demonic power. He, Israel, Deuteronomy 32, and then I'll speed up because I want to get somewhere this morning. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God. Gods, small g, they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your ancestors did not fear, small g. You deserted the rock who bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. That applies to us. So, what's an idol? What's an idol? An idol is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing. But it becomes the best thing. So an idol can be a good thing that you've made the most important thing out of. An idol can be a good thing like your relationships, your, your husband, your wife, your children, your political affirmation. Do you ever see such idolatry as around politics? And that's why the enemy of our soul, he loves to hook into politics because it's a way of the world. It's not the way of the king or the kingdom. 
When humanity asks for a king, they ask for politics instead of letting the kingdom come in its fullness. An idol can be a good thing, your relationship, your husband, your relationship, your politics. You've made the supreme thing your central thing in your life. Does that make sense? You've made that thing the supreme thing and the central thing in your life. So a good thing that becomes a God thing actually becomes a bad thing. That's what an idol is. A good thing that becomes a God thing that becomes a central thing becomes a bad thing. So not all things are bad. It keeps us up all night and it wakes us up in the morning. Right? Not the wife. It's an idol. Keeps us up all night and it wakes us in the morning. It's, it's a created thing that takes the creator's place. It's what you turn to when you want to get what you want in life. It's an idol is anything our life in our lives that occupies a place that should be occupied by God alone. Just firing some things out to you. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. Is an idol. See, the way the Bible deals with our sin is not just don't do this and don't do that. I hope you've realized that by now. This book, the ancient scriptures, is not a, a book on behavior. Though our behavior changes when we engage with Jesus. It's not a book of don't do this or don't do that. You shouldn't feel this way or you shouldn't feel that way. Instead, what it does is the scripture, it drills down to the roots of our feelings and our behaviors. And the Bible asks this question, what are you doing? What are you doing with this or that? Are you making it a central part? Why do you feel this way or that way? The Bible always asks this question, something other than God has taken control of your heart. What is it? What is it? Here's the other thing. We're coming in the land. Bible, uh, Bibles. Idols become our rivals. Idols become our rivals. The Bible reminds us in Jeremiah when he says, those who make idols are disillusioned. Sadly, idols don't just stop when they've disappointed us and they will eventually disappoint. They enslave us too. They trap us. The Bible says those who make idols end up like them. They become your rival. They become your rival. You want it central? You want to worship it? You want to bring it into your heart? And then all of a sudden, you can't satisfy it. It becomes your rival. If you value money, guess what happens? You become materialistic. Is money bad? No. But the love of money is when it becomes the idol, and when it becomes your idol, then you become a materialistic person. Does this make sense? If you value pleasure, you become a hedonist, right? That's your God, that's your idol. You want pleasure, 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 and that becomes your life, and you just can't satisfy it. You just can't satisfy it. Is this making sense to anybody this morning? If you value works, you become a pragmatist, pragmatist, right? If you value Above all else, Jesus Christ, you become a Christian. That's how it works. So if putting something else in our first place in our lives, what happens is it warps us. Why does it do that? Because we want a God that we can control. We want a God of certainty. We want a God of comfort. We want a God that, that we end up controlling. But what actually happens is that idol ends up controlling you. The idol becomes your rival. Does that make sense to anybody this morning? Is that making sense? So here's what I don't want you to hear this morning. I don't want you 
I'm not talking about avoiding things that bring you life. Okay, so just relax. I'm not here to stamp out pleasure or things that bring you life. And nor do I want Vineyard Church Dungannon to become the idol hunters. Because that just is silly. You know the idol hunters where you just obsess all the time? Is this an idol? I mean, do I love my scooter so much? That little duck egg blue thing that sits out there. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. It brings me life. makes me smile. And I hear you say, burn it. It's an idol. <laughs> I went to a Christian Bible college. That was fun. And I got into a conversation one night, and they, the music that I enjoyed and engaged with, uh, it, was, it was good music. Like I had everything from Big Country to Neil Young and Bad Manners, The Smiths. And these guys told me that they were idols, and they said, Jason, this is the devil's music. The best thing that you can do tonight is gather them all up and put them in a trash can. So we lad from Derry didn't want an idol in his life, so he took all his records and tapes, and tapes are all back in, by the way. And so I put them, and I prayed over them, and I put them in the trash can. And then I woke up in the morning, and I thought, what have I just done? So I put on my clothes and I ran down to the garbage area, as the Yanks call it, to find that the trash guys had come and emptied my tapes and CDs. So we're going to take an offering this morning again. (laughs) How do you escape idolatry, the power of the non-gods? Well, from the human side, if idolatry at core is, I'm worshiping what is not God, and give my heart, my attention to my affections and my attachment to what is not God, then the way to escape that is worship. Worship God. Just bring him into the, to the center. Then I escape it. My, I give my affection, my attachment, my heart to what is God. It's okay to have pleasure in life, guys. It's okay to enjoy coffee and food and cars. You're home. It's great to have a holiday. It's great to have friendships and relationships and a good wife and a good husband and great kids. It's great to have a great job and a great career. Those are good things. It's good to find things outside of church, whether it's a gym or a club or a pub or a football team like the Swifts. I encourage you, our membership takes place again in August, and there's a committee meeting next Monday night if you want to get yourselves down there. You don't have to do all that. All you have to do is bring Jesus into the center of all that you do. Well, here becomes your first love. Here's, here's what happens, friends, and we are closing. When you worship, you say, I've got these idols in my life. I see them, okay? I see them. And I want to stop bowing down. I don't want to be a chronological snob anymore. I want to bring them to my attention. I want them to be front and center. And I want to uh, just say that I, I acknowledge this. And I want to stop being enslaved by things that are just silly, that are not gods, but have become gods and become my rival. I need to give my heart to Christ. I need to sing to Christ. I need to attach myself to Christ. And God, what he does for me is what the father does in the story of the prodigal son. Could we, could we worship together just as I finish with this story? Would that be okay? Could we, could we worship? Sam, would you come? Let me just finish with this story. Do you know the story of the prodigal son? Yeah? 
So this, this guy, he goes and he, he just, he's got the idols of life. It's wealth and he's a hedonist. He's a, he's a heavy hedonist. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure is his God, right? So he sleeps around. He whores around with prostitutes. That's what the scripture says. He's a hedonist. Pleasure is his God and his idol and, and his wealth and his money. He wants it all and he wants it now and he wants it fast. But what happens in the story is that his idol becomes his rival and it enslaves him. Do you know that story? And he ends up a Jewish boy looking after pigs. It's ironic, isn't it? Unclean, Jew, pork, bacon. No, it's not a good place to be. And so he comes back to the father and he comes back and he, he, he comes back and he comes to the posture of worship again. Back to the father's house. And here's what God does. He takes a glance and he runs. And then there's this very intimate thing that the Bible talks about. And for all the guys that make you, might make you feel a little squeamish this morning. It's called the kiss of the father. The father kisses him. And the kiss of God, your Father. This is prophetic this morning. Would you stand with me? See, when we worship in a way that's abandoned and wholehearted, when you worship the Father by His Spirit, He'll lean over and He'll kiss you. And the kiss of God will satisfy your soul. So you don't need to panic this morning. You don't need to become an idol hunter. You don't need to avoid pleasure. You don't have to avoid the good things that God has for you. All you have to do is look in his direction again. Bring him front and bring him center to everything that you do. And when he kisses you, the kiss of God will satisfy your soul and everything peels into insignificance everything that we strive for so here's what we're going to say are you up for this are you up for a little liturgical stuff yeah are you up for it I want you to say this this morning if you're comfortable just before we sing, I want you to say to your heavenly Father, Father, I want you to kiss me. And that felt uncomfortable, right? Because that's kind of intimate. So let's say it again. Let's get over our, let's get over that part, the cringe part. And let's engage with Jesus through the Holy Spirit to God the Father. Let's say it one more time. Father, I want you to kiss me. And if you're serious about saying that, let me, let me say this over you. His kiss will displace the idols this morning. Allow him to displace the idols in your heart. Let's worship. Let's worship.